listening to the stories and perspectives and backgrounds of so many of God's children that are gathered here, um, you start to sense that we are in in God's will. We are in some kind of moment here. (laughs) I don't think it's a coincidence that such a diverse group of Christians from all around the world, even places historically hostile to each other, are gathered here at this moment. Amen. I just I think we are standing in the will of God here. Amen. Or sitting as the case may be. <laughs> if you look at history, incredible movements, incredible changes, incredible revivals often came out of conversations such as we could have during this time. And the church needs God. <laughs> And the world needs the church. And so it doesn't seem either naive or too bold to dare to hope that God would give us something that could, that could ramify massively across the face of the earth. That's our prayer. That's our, that's our faith. That's our commitment at this time, that the Lord would equip us with the task that He's called us to at this time. Maybe we should discuss unity in the church. Why is there no unity? What makes for unity? What is godly unity in contrast to counterfeit unity? That's kind of the the discussion we thought we might should get into right here at the onset. Can we all agree that there's not much unity in the church? (laughs) Amen. What is the place that, what does Scripture indicate that unity symbolizes? What is is its role in God's plan? A witness to the world that God is real, (laughs) that Jesus was the Messiah. Amen. John 17, it's not like he makes it a peripheral thing. Amen. He says, this is how the world will know that you sent me, that God sent Jesus. Make them one so that the world will know. Amen. He elsewhere says that they're going to know that we are His disciples by our love one for another. I thought it might be helpful just to, since we're talking about the church and unity, just to read Ephesians 4 as a framing understanding of this topic. You know, Ephesians 1, he talks about the blessings of redemption, that God has granted salvation to the Gentiles. Ephesians 2, he talks about how they've been made alive in Christ. Um, And and he he starts to get into what it looks like to be part of the church and, and the temple and so on and so forth. Ephesians 3, he talks about his stewardship and the task of of communicating this grace. And then Ephesians 4, he gets into unity. And he starts by saying, it almost, Ephesians 4 almost sounds like the beginning of a letter. Because it's, I think, the previous passages are precursors, they're framing for what he really wants to get to 
and he, he starts putting the plow deep into the soil in Ephesians 4. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And what is that worthiness? How are we worthy of the calling? He tells us, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he inserts a parenthetical thought. We don't have it offset by parentheses, but this is a parenthetical thought. He tells them, I want you to walk worthy of the calling God's given you. And worthy for Paul looked like humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, love, and a diligent pursuit of unity. But then in verse 4, I would say that he introduces his, his first parenthetical here. He's going to double down and say, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in you all. So he says, Be diligent to pursue, pursue unity, because there's only one right way. <laughs> Immediately on the heels of this challenge to diligently chase unity, he says there's one, 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 one way. And that's what we've got to be in pursuit of. But he shows us that these attitudes in verse 2 enable that process. So he says, I want you to pursue unity because there's one way. But then he says, he introduces this, this phrase in, um, in uh, verse 7. He says, but. So it's, it's this challenge of there's, there's this possibility of unity. There's this oneness of God's purpose. But here's the problem. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So he says that he shows us that the problem is that we don't have all of the spirit that is in the world. We have individually a measure, a portion. Only to the Son was the spirit given without measure. But to each one of us, the spirit was given in measure. And that smallness of our individual measure entails a problem. <laughs> because we don't see everything that the Spirit is giving to everybody. We only see what the Spirit is giving to us. And the Spirit is not giving individuals everything. He is giving all individuals something. <laughs> so there's this challenge of unity that we don't see through the Spirit, because the Spirit is what leads and guides us into all truth, correct? So he introduces the, the smallness of our measure as the challenge to our unity, but he gives us a remedy. 
But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, in answer to this challenge, in answer to the smallness of our individual deposit of the Spirit, therefore, because of that, it says, When He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now this expression... So right here we see that Paul is saying that the gifts that God has placed in the church are to compensate for the small measure that we have of the Spirit. If we had all the Spirit, we wouldn't need the church. We'd have this direct communion with God that did not require help from the other portions. We certainly must have direct communion with God, shouldn't we? That is the starting place, isn't it? But he's saying God has established the church as an antidote to the smallness of your spirit deposit. Amen? Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And I'm going to ask Brother Howard to give us an encapsulated summation of that idea. Every mention of this verse from the Psalms in Jewish literature up through the first century, in other words, it was the context it was understood in, was it involved Moses going on high to Sinai and bringing the law back. Single instance of any midrash, anything like that, that's what this verse meant Talmud. to the first century church. So just, just to be clear, verse 8 is a quote from the book of Psalms. Your Bible may not show that, but it is. And what Brother Howard is saying is that this was a very often quoted quote from Psalms. It was often quoted at Pentecost, and it referred to Moses going up on the mountain and descending with the gift of the law for the people. Right. And so Paul is actually using it here as an allusion to Jesus ascending into heaven and coming back with the Spirit, the new law. Amen. Which came at Pentecost, which was the celebration of what? The giving of the law. The the giving of the law. When He ascended, He said, It is expedient that I go away, like Moses went away up into heaven. When He went up onto a mountain, Jesus went away into heaven, and He gave gifts. Moses came down and gave the law. Jesus gave the Holy Spirit on the day that celebrated the giving of the law. Amen. On the, giving of the, on the day of the giving of the law, there, I think about 3,000 were put to death or died. And yet on the day of, of, of the giving of the Spirit, 3,000 were added to their number. And so what the next verse, which almost all translations will always put in a parenthesis because it doesn't make sense to people, because in the 4th century, there was a word added in one manuscript. Nowhere else is it found. And that was the word first. It will read, now this, he ascended. What does it mean except that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? That word first is not in the scripture. It really isn't. And what he's talking about here is he ascended, he's not talking about then he, he came down to earth, lived, died, and then he went back to heaven. 
what it's saying is he went to heaven and descended as the spirit. He came back and descended as the spirit and now wants to fill all in all. Amen. Amen. So Paul is saying that we have this small portion. That's the challenge to our unity. But God has given the gifts in the church as the remedy for the small deposit that each one of us has. And he says, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts unto men. This is what Jesus had promised when he said, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. He was speaking of him coming back in the form of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? except that He also descended into the lower parts of the earth. I read the New American Standard, so it doesn't have first in there. <laughs> he who descended is Himself also He who ascended far above all the heavens, so that He might fill all things. And so what is the point of Him giving the gifts? That He might fill all things. Amen. So the problem is that you're not completely full because you only have a measure. And the point of giving the gifts for the church is that He might fill, fill all things. <laughs> do, you see, do you see His equation here? Can I, Please. Can I throw yes. something in that is directly related to that point? Absolutely. I'm just looking at the end of Ephesians 3, Yes. which happens to come right before Ephesians 4. Oh, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a revelation. <laughs> but, you know, this is where He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Amen you know, from whom the whole family in heaven on earth is named. So he's talking about the church in heaven and on earth. And he says that this is why he's praying, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints Amen. what is the width and length, and depth, and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Of God. And then, then you guys know the rest of it. But I'm just saying his preface Amen. to this whole passage in Ephesians 4 is to say, this is the point here. You guys are, needing, are supposed to be full. Amen. And that's going to happen together with all the saints Amen. through the Spirit of God that He's poured out into each one of you. As you come together, you're going to know the depth, the height, the width. There's going to be a three-dimensional space Amen. in which the Spirit of God is going to dwell and be a witness among you. So, He's saying that we want this fullness, but we only got a portion. And the problem of disunity in the church is that People see their walk with God strictly individualistically. They don't see that they're supposed to be part of a people. They don't see that they're supposed to be fitly framed together. They don't see that God has placed in the church the answer to what they lack. And that there's no scenario where a Christian was made to make it by himself and that you do not have enough of God alone, you must be in the body of Christ. And that those gifts have got to be at work in the church, and when they are, unity will become possible. Because God has given an antidote 
to the smallness of our individual insight, our individual gifting, our individual anointing. Now he's going to elaborate the gifts that he has given in the church unto this work of filling full the body of Christ. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry or service to the building up of the body of Christ. This does not simply refer to the numerical addition <coughs> of Christians to, the, to salvation. This, is, this refers to the filling full of the body of Christ, to the three-dimensional completeness that is supposed to come after the skeleton of initial faith is established. So that the five-fold ministry has this task for building up the body of Christ. And this is the next word in verse 13. Until, until, there, the five-fold ministry is supposed to be working and whatever they're doing is going to accomplish 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. <laughs> Amen? So here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, ain't it just cute that God put so many diverse gifts so that each one of us can go down the buffet and pull the things we like and, and eventually individuals are going to get as mature as Jesus. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's not promising any individual will reach the measure of the stature of Christ. Not at all. That would be antichrist. <laughs> he is promising that each individual will find their place in a corporate composition and that we together will reach one man's stature. Amen. Full measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. So I've actually heard Christians teach this passage where they were suggesting that individually I should be reaching for the full measure of Christ. That's absurd. And that is not what he's talking about. He is saying that we are going to corporately achieve this unity of one man the full measure that belongs to the, full, to the fullness of Christ. As a result, as a result of this process of trying to get there, as a result of that, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So, Paul is saying... That the, the problem, the reason unity is hard to achieve is because we don't individually have all of the Spirit. 
but the answer is found in the proper ordering of the gifts that comprise the church. And he introduces the fivefold ministry as the solution for ending the trickery of men, for ending the waves of doctrine that toss us, and for achieving the full measure of the stature of Christ. In short, I would say, where we find disunity, that evidences a dysfunctional or the, or the total lack of the fivefold ministry. And where we find true unity, that is unfakeable evidence of the activity or composition of the fivefold ministry. That something is working that solves the problem of our individual portion and brings us into a corporate wholeness. I'd like to just look at Galatians 3, um, where he says in verse 25, he says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all who have been baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. Now if you know this passage in Galatians 3, you know that Paul has made a point to say that Christ, that the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. And then Paul says, he does not say to seeds referring to many, but to seed referring to Christ. So when he concludes by saying, if you have clothed yourself, you have put on Christ, he then says, you are Abraham's seed. He uses the same singular word exactly. So he's saying you're not a bunch of seeds. You've been baptized into Christ. Paul envisioned that baptism was an immersion into a singular entity called Jesus, called Christ. He saw individuals as being dunked, immersed into the body of Christ. Amen. And of course that corresponds to his view that the church had become the Israel of God, the commonwealth of promise. And so he saw baptism as corresponding to the new covenant to circumcision in the old. It was how you kept from being put out of the people. But just here in, in Ephesians 4, to finish the passage here, or to read some further, it's important to us that He has introduced unity as the goal, the smallness of our portion as the problem, the gifts of the body as the solution, wholeness, fullness, the full measure of stature of Christ as the aim, and then He's going to show us the antagonism. It's the carnal mind. Okay? Verse 17, So, this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. And what is that walk that Paul wants them to quit? 
in the futility of their mind. So this is why there's disunity in the body. Because the futility of human thinking has taken the place of Christ and the anointing. In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding. So it's ironic that the Gentiles walk in the futility of the human mind, and the result is that they are darkened in their understanding. (laughs) Those who prize and exalt the human intellect do not come to a brighter understanding. They come to a darkened understanding. But he shows us why. Excluded from the life of God. So there's the futility of the mind versus the life of God that comes through the Spirit. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. But why is the ignorance in them? Because of the hardness of their heart. And they have become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him. Brother Howard, you can elaborate on this passage if you don't mind. It's it's the only place in Greek literature in the whole world where a proper name like Christ is followed by learned, is, is preceded by learned. I would not say I learned Gert. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say I, I learned Titus. You can say I learned math, I learned a language, you know, but the reason this is the only place where this can occur is because you can learn the truth, and Christ is the truth. Amen. 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 It's a unique use. And he doesn't say, if you have heard about him, in spite of what some translations, there is no preposition there. If you have heard him, that's the anointed word of God. So he's saying, if you have learned Christ and heard Christ, this parallels Romans 10 precisely. If you have heard Him, think about that. Jesus has been ascended for maybe 50 years by this point. Okay? This is not, Paul is not talking about Ephesus believers hearing the man from Nazareth preach in their time. That's not what he's talking about. But he's saying they could hear the anointing. They could hear Christos. They could hear Jesus in the body of Christ. They could directly encounter the Lord in this manner. So, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him just as truth is in Jesus, He goes on in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, that's the individual self, which is being corrupted in accordance with lust of deceit, and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, and the literal is man there, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, therefore laying aside falsehood, 
Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So the whole idea that you have learned Christ because Christ is the Logos, the Rhema, the spoken word made flesh. Amen. That's why he connects it so inseparably to truth. So in Romans 10, there's a lot of parallel here. Could somebody get Deuteronomy 30 and 12 uh, as a parallel here? Paul is obviously bewailing the loss of salvation from the majority of the Jewish congregation. And he starts this lament in, in chapter 9, the first verse of chapter 9, after describing the beauty of salvation in Romans 8, who can separate us from the love of Christ. That thought leads him to say, I have exceeding sorrow and, and I am under great duress because of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, because they're not saved. And, and then he goes into chapter 10 and he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that is for the Jewish people, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. So he's just said that they rejected Jesus. And he's saying that he is just burdened for their salvation. But he says it's because they've chosen the wrong righteousness. They haven't chosen the righteousness of faith. But he says the righteousness of faith talks to us. It says something to us. It speaks as follows. And he commences to quote Moses with some notable tweaks. <laughs> so let's look at Deuteronomy 30 and 12, I believe it is. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. So in this commission from Moses regarding the covenant, the, the first corporate covenant, Moses is telling the people, Don't act like you can't obey. Don't act like this is mysterious for you. If you've ever tangled with stubborn human nature who doesn't want to know God's will, mysterious is the operative word of rebellion. <laughs> it's like we never want to say, no, I don't want to. We say, I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you do understand. You just don't want to. <laughs> but mysterious is where the flesh likes to hide from obedience. And so Moses is saying, don't think this is mysterious for you. There's no mystery here. Don't begin to say in your heart, who's going to go out and get this? And, and so in, in this equation with Moses, he's, he's inciting them, he's provoking them to enjoin the covenant of salvation. And he's talking about the command. The command is not far out there. It's right near you so that you can do it. Paul takes the same equation and he quotes Moses to the T except that it's no longer a command, it's Jesus. He's saying to the Jews 
who rejected Jesus, it's not too late. He's not in heaven so far away that you can't talk to Him anymore. And He's not down in the abyss of the grave so dead that you can't relate to Him anymore. He's still here. You can still interact with this saving Christ who came for you. So He's telling them, don't act like it's too late. Don't act like this is a mystery. It's still available to you, and we're going to see exactly how. So he says here, he says, But the righteousness of faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So he's saying, don't, don't talk about trying to get Christ from heaven and don't talk about trying to get Christ from the grave. You may think he's still in the grave unresurrected as a Jew. You're not going to get him from there. And you may think he's resurrected in heaven and that's not where you're going to get him from either. But there is a place where you're going to get him from. Amen. But he solves the, the equation. Verse 8, but what does it say? And it, here is faith again. Faith says, the word is near you. And the word is rhema here. So it's the spoken word of God, the, the preached word of the anointing that he's referring to here. Mm -hmm. So what Paul is basically saying is stop acting like you can't interact with Christ because if you can interact with the rhema of God, you are interacting with Christ. He's not far away. He's right there in the word. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word, the rhema of faith which we are preaching. He goes on, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him for the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Notice he doesn't say with the head a person believes. With the heart, because to encounter truth is a spiritual, emotional encounter. It's an encounter with your Maker. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. He's they're still talking about, don't act like he's rich toward the Gentiles, but he doesn't answer the Jews. He's abounding in riches. He's given answers. He's given help. He's given salvation to all who call on him. Paul doubles down here in an equation that if you follow me should scare you. Verse 2. 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Paul is introducing here, Jesus is still available to you. Jesus is still here. He's still abounding in riches to all who call on Him. And whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a salvation equation. Unequivocal will be saved. But then he introduces a dilemma. The dilemma that he is trying to annihilate in their thinking. Their thinking of unbelief that says it's too late. Their thinking of unbelief that says he's too far off. Okay, so he says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So he says you cannot, this, the kind of saving call does, has to start with a saving faith. Amen? Mm -hmm. And he says, you can't call on Him whom you have not believed. But then he says the next thing. How will they believe in Him 
whom they have not heard. You've got to encounter God to have the right kind of saving faith. Not an idea about Him, not a word about Him, not a thought about Him, not a teaching about Him. You've got to encounter Him in some real way where you can say, I heard Jesus. And when you hear Jesus, you can have the saving faith. So he says, how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And then he says, and how will they hear without a preacher? Implying that this Christ that they're going to hear is actually going to come through the gifts of the body. How will they preach unless they are sent? So he's, he's not saying that any old person can just say, oh yes, so they need a preacher. I'm one. I'll preach. There needs to be apostello. There needs to be the sending of the Holy Spirit before that's going to count for anything. It all ties into the anointing. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. However, they did not all heed the good news, the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ, of the Anointed One. So in short, what Paul is saying here in Romans 10 is exactly what he was saying over there. People are going to have to hear God. They're going to have to have a real and spiritual encounter with Jesus. And just quoting Scripture doesn't constitute that. It's going to have to be the words of Christos before that saving faith can allow them to say, I don't need to look up high in heaven or down in the abyss. I have heard God. Amen. Did not our hearts burn within us as He spoke with us and taught us along the way Amen. and opened the Scriptures to us? Amen. So let's recap for a second. So we're seeking unity, aren't we? Amen. And we're, we're discovering that the challenge to unity is that we don't all have all of Christ. We have a portion. And we're discovering that the remedy to that smallness of our deposit is the body of Christ. Amen? And that we have got to come into this whole measure of the stature of one man, individually losing our individual selves and becoming part of one corporate man. And we're seeing that truth is in Jesus and that we are going to encounter Jesus through His body. That's even how we're going to come to saving faith not hearing words about God, but we can still, we don't need to say, where is God? Is Christ high in heaven? Is Christ down in the abyss? No, the word is still coming to us. The word, the rhema of his power through the body of Christ. So we have introduced that the anointed rhema of God's power and the fivefold ministry are the remedies for unity. If these are at work and if we are in submission to this configuration, then unity is a process in progress. It's a work in progress. But if we are not in submission, then we are isolated, we are fractured, we are individuals adrift, tossed by every wave and the wind of doctrine of tricky men. So the key is going to be we got to change our attitude toward the Word of God. we got to know the difference between talk about Jesus and the anointed word of Jesus. <laughs> and we've got to change our attitude about the composition of the body's order. And we've got to say, Lord, put us in a place, put us in a, in a global configuration where the fivefold ministry has a chance to do what it was sent to do. Can I mention yes. something that we didn't get into the counterfeits very much yet? No, not yet. 
I just think about this, this very beginning of chapter 4 in Ephesians. He really gives us a recipe there for what our attitude should be as we pursue this unity. Amen. But I think it gets misunderstood Amen. sometimes. So when he talks to us there, to, just to review, he says you're going to need to walk worthy of the calling that you've received. You're going to need humility. You delete humility from your heart, you're not going to find unity. Amen. You're just not going to find it. Amen. You're going to need humility. You're going to need gentleness or carefulness. Amen. You can't be a bull in the china shop, so to speak. Amen. We've got to be careful with the truth and with one another Amen. and with relationships. And then he says, with long suffering, we're going to have to have a little patience. Amen. <laughs> and, and then the New King James says, <laughs> bearing with one another in love, which the, the, new, the NASB says, Tolerance, <laughs> which tolerance can be misleading in, in modern parlance at least. But seriously, what does that mean? Bearing with one another Amen. in love. Because I think we probably all know how that gets turned in a lot of places. That, that means uh, allow for compromise. Several testified today about sin in the church that's not being dealt with, on and on and on. And then we just call it unity because no one is disagreeing, because we have all agreed to disagree, and we've all agreed that that's fine. And so now we're one in Christ because that's a counterfeit. Amen. It's not real unity. And then he says, and this seems essential because he says, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Amen. And I think sometimes people twist that where it, almost as if it said being diligent to keep a spirit of unity. Hmm. Like this is just some kind of ambiance of, of uh, getting along that we're supposed to do. Amen. But he says to keep the spirit of unity. Spirit in my New King James is capitalized. Right. <laughs> this is the spirit of God yes. indicating that Unity is not going to be possible unless we are all yielding to the Holy Spirit. Amen. So he's writing to the church here and talking about maturing. Yes. He says that we're no longer going to be children, indicating that we've already been born. He is making an assumption here that these are born again Amen. by water and spirit believers that are now struggling together to come into the fullness of the expression of the body of Christ Amen. that he's called them to. So I'm just emphasizing that there is a key ingredient here. Amen. If the Spirit is not at work, if it is not alive and active in each heart of, as the members of His body, we are not going to achieve unity. That same humility and, and spirit of repentance that led us to receive the Holy Spirit, not again, not to receive words about the Holy Spirit, yes. but to actually receive the Spirit and power. Amen. That same yieldedness to God, that's going to have to be operational and living, not a one-time experience. That's going to have to be alive and well Amen. in all the members. Amen. And that's what's going to cause us to know when we find that resonance of unity. Amen. You know, you think of the various uh, conflicts that we read about in the book of Acts in the church, where even the apostles are, are having to work through some things. Amen. <laughs> They're encountering things that, that God is doing that seem to run counterintuitive with their understanding of truth that was even based in the Scriptures, as Amen. in the Old Testament, that they had to work with. And what is going on here? Amen. Here come the Gentiles. But what about the law that came through Amen. Moses that we've had for 3,000 years? And 
they're trying to work through some pretty gnarly questions. And yet, how do they do that? Amen. Well, first of all, they do it together. They don't say, well, I don't know, let's, make, let's, make, let's have a division. You guys follow Moses and we'll follow this new teaching and, and, and um, you know, respect each other. They work at it. They say, let's, let's get into the scripture. Let's get in prayer. Let's hear testimony. But most of all, let's listen for the Spirit. Amen. You know, and that's eventually what they come to. Amen. They hear the testimony and then they get quiet. You know, Amen. when different ones speak, this happens in, in Acts 11 and 12. Amen. Uh, when Cornelius comes in and Peter's giving an answer, it happens again in Acts 15 when they're working through the questions of the Gentiles again Amen. because they've... Worked on it in Antioch and didn't quite get there, so they yeah. come to Jerusalem and we're going to get there. We're going to work on this Amen. until we get it. What is their conclusion? Uh, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit Amen. and to us Amen. to lay on you no further burden than these three things. Amen. They're listening for the Spirit Amen. in all of those things because they have the capacity. There's that resonance when you know, well, that, that had some truth to it, that had some truth to it, but... I'm feeling God in this. Amen. Harmony is coming here Amen. where my heart, my soul, my mind are all resonating together Amen. to say this is God. Here he says, he calls it the unity of the Spirit. And just like there are multiple joys, there are multiple unities. And the only one that matters is the unity of the Spirit. Amen. Not the unity of the small spirit spirits. <laughs> Amen. The unity of the Spirit. I mean, think about joy. There's, there's, there's the pleasures of sin for a season. Mm -hmm. There's the joy of booze, right? But then there's the joy of the Spirit. There's the pleasures at His right hand forevermore. And there is all manner of counterfeit unities. And I was thinking about just in that word tolerance, how um, if you look at 1 Corinthians, really both, both epistles to the Corinthians, there is a pivotal crisis Paul is, is dealing with, with disunity, divisions in the church, um, and, and I think it might be helpful. We may not have the time, but I think it might be helpful to dig into those a little bit. But beyond that, he is, he is uh, dealing with a particular crisis of immorality that, that will not stop. And he says to the, church, to the Corinthian church that they need to put the offending member out of the church. And what does he... What does he say immediately on the heels of that command? He says, your boasting is not good. So not only were they tolerating, but they were doing it under a false kind of self-congratulation. Mm -hmm. You're boasting. They were keeping this sin in the church and they were boasting about it because they were so tolerant. Mm -hmm. They were so loving. But he says, your boasting is not good. For a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. He says, I hear that you tolerate such things, Paul says. And he's angry and he's rebuking them for their tolerance. That is not what he's talking about over here where he talks about the gentleness, long-suffering, or how does the New King Bearing with one another. Bearing with one another in love, yes. That's what it was. But however you phrase it, they're both valid depictions, though I prefer the New King James. Um, but they're both valid, but what is he talking about? What are we bearing with? Are we bearing with someone who is fallen and imperfect, but whose will is totally to do God's will, who's pressing in with faith? Well, that's a brother. 
and, and in that sense, he says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone among you is caught in any trespass, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself. That's all appropriate. But when there is someone who's in intractable sin and will not relent, opposing the will and word of God, well, then he can say, your boasting is not good. I hear that you tolerate those among you who do such and such. So we're going to have to get, we're going to have to disentangle mm -hmm. what the, the, the modern church has done to these terms like even love. and We can go in one ditch or the other or we can find the will of God. <laughs>